This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Well, good evening. Uh, My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're going to do Discovering Salem on the 20th of March. That's a Saturday, and then the 21st is a Sunday. So it's 6 to 9 p.m. Saturday, and it is uh, 9 to noon on Sunday, and we're going to be outside, distanced, with masks on, except while we're eating the food. So uh, that's the 20th of March and the 21st, and I hope anyone can come. You don't have to join the church if you come. Um, but it's a great time to get to know more people at the church and to know more about what the church believes. So we're looking at the, um, the parables of Jesus. Um, we've already looked at a few of them, but tonight we're looking at three more. And there are two that um, demonstrate the expansiveness of, of the kingdom of God, the way that it's expanding, the way that we believe the whole universe is expanding. Um, I've compared it to if you... Uh, have a balloon and you put black dots around the balloon and you blow it up uh, and the black dots get bigger and the whole thing gets bigger and they all get farther apart. That's the way the universe is expanding, space and time itself. In the same way, the kingdom of God is expanding. Uh, and we're all, all the churches around the world are like the dots that expand with the kingdom. So, um, and maybe the kingdom is expanding cosmically in ways we don't even understand. But the first two parables are about this mighty seed uh, that a small seed that grows into a mighty tree that grows out. And the second parable is about uh, leaven that a woman puts in bread and it, grow, it kind of penetrates the whole thing. So one is expansion outward, the other is expansion inward. And then after that parable, he teaches a parable um, about a door that's narrow. So it's a paradox. And of course he knows it's a paradox and he wants it to be a paradox. And what he's saying is you've got to go into a narrow door, me, Jesus, not me, and you go through that narrow door, and then it's like it opens up to this giant you know, mountain view. So you, maybe you've been on a, a hike before, and you come through a narrow little passage in the mountain, and then all of a sudden there's a gigantic valley that you see. And that's the way Christianity is. Jesus is this narrow little door. You've got to go through him. There's no other way. But then once you go through there, it's massive. So um, that's what I want to look at, the expansiveness of the kingdom and then the narrowness of the kingdom. And the context here is really important. Um, so uh, we didn't hear this first part uh, Haley didn't read this but right before the passage there's a story about a synagogue ruler and the synagogues where the Jewish people would meet and uh, they would study the scriptures a lot like a church service and um, this woman is in the synagogue who is bent over for 18 years she's been crippled for 18 years and Jesus heals her in the synagogue he's, he's preaching on the Sabbath day on a Saturday in the synagogue he sees the woman It says he touched her, she stood up straight, and she praised God. This beautiful moment of someone brought into the kingdom, 
And it says the synagogue ruler became angry. He became indignant. He was being very narrow. He didn't want that to happen. So that's the first story. And then right after that, a guy walks up to Jesus in verse 23 and he says, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Which sounds like a question, but it's actually a statement because we know from rabbinic Judaism of that period that there was this understanding that very few people would be saved. So one of the books was uh, called Fourth Ezra. And in Fourth Ezra 8.1, it says, the most high made this world for the sake of many, but the world to come for the sake of only a few. That was a very common perception uh, of a lot of Jewish leaders of the day, that in heaven there'd be very few people. So when this guy says, Lord, will those who are saved be few? He's really saying, Aren't, isn't it true that what we think is true, that only a few uh, very righteous and devout Jews are saved and the rest of the Gentiles are all going to hell? Okay, so that's the context where Jesus is speaking and he corrects that attitude by telling these two parables about the expansiveness of the kingdom. Verse 19, the kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and it became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. So a mustard seed is very tiny and then the mustard tree is very large, uh, but it's not so large that uh, all the birds of the air can make their nests in its branches. So this is hyperbole. And he's saying that this tiny little thing can create this gigantic, uh, almost like an ecosystem where all the birds are nesting in the branches. It's a very inclusive tree. If you've ever seen a banyan tree, uh, they're usually they're like, a lot of them are India, uh, but in southern, southern climates there are these banyan trees and they're just gigantic canopies that have all of this life. They even have things growing down into the ground through them. They're mat the biggest tree in the world is a banyan tree and they have all these creatures and birds and, and stuff. And that's what he's saying the kingdom of God is like. This vast habitat that is welcoming and protecting all these different creatures and birds in this case, he mentions, the birds of the air. And actually the figure of a tree, like a protective canopy, was very common um, at this time. It was, a, it was a figure that was used for ancient kings. So an ancient king would be compared to a great tree in which all of his subjects are flourishing. So here's Ezekiel 31.5 from the Old Testament. It's a prediction of the final coming of the kingdom of God. Ezekiel writes, um, its boughs grew large and its branches long. So, you know, the biggest, imagine the biggest tree, maybe that one right there, and the boughs are just growing uh, large and the branches are just lengthening and all the birds of the heaven made their nests in it. Now this is Ezekiel, and obviously Jesus is referencing this. All the birds of the heavens made their nests in it. Almost a quote. And Ezekiel goes on to say, also the beasts of the field, all the beasts of the field, gave birth to their young underneath it. So this giant tree, all the birds have come there, all these animals have come there to give birth to their young because it's so protective. And then Ezekiel ends by saying, under its shadow lived every great nation. Not just the small nations, but the empires like Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, Rome, Greece. All of them would come and live underneath the branches of this gigantic tree. So Jesus is referring back to that tree. His hearers would have known that. He's the tree of Ezekiel. And he is greater than any empire that's ever existed. Even Alexander the Great, who 
ruled from Greece to India could not compare to this tree that Jesus is talking about. And then rather than colonizing the way that these ancient empires would do, where Alexander the Great exploited all their resources and used them for himself, rather than exploiting these different birds and beasts, actually in this case, the tree is blessing them and is giving his life for them. And he's making them flourish. Like some of you kids have read The Giving Tree, um, which is a beautiful book. Uh, some people have called it abusive. I think that's wrong. It's a, I think it's a beautiful story, this tree. And it says that this little boy gathered her leaves and climbed her trunk and swung in her branches and slept in her shade. So if you ever read The Giving Tree, that's what he's talking about here. This beautiful example of a kingdom, a king who comes and blesses the whole world with shalom, with peace. Unto us a child is born, Isaiah 9, 6. Unto us a son is given. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And that's what he's talking about. That Jesus is this tiny little seed who comes and he brings forth this gigantic kingdom uh, that is protecting the, all the nations under its branches and creating peace and flourishing underneath them. And at this time, I mean, we all saw it happen this week in Washington, D.C. And at this time to say that this tree exists is so important. Uh, for you and I to believe that even though uh, there was a man walking through the Capitol with a Confederate flag, uh, which is such a disgrace to our country, uh, that in the, in the Capitol where that was put down intentionally, that a man would walk through with a Confederate flag, or you might have seen the, the man that was like scaling the walls of the Senate chamber. It just felt like a total disgrace to our country, a sacrilege really. If there's anything sacred about our country that's a secular country, it is the, the rotunda in the Capitol, and there was a man scaling the wall like in a military outfit. And somebody had hung a noose in front of the Capitol on the lawn. And so you see that, and, you, and there was very minimal resistance from the government, like a total double standard from some of the, the things that happened this summer. And um, you know, it seems like there's absolutely no peace at all. And um, it's just continued, the news has just continued to talk about uh, what happened. You just learn more and more. You see certain videos, and it's really horrifying. But in this time, we've got to remember that, that Isaiah said, of the increase of his peace and his government, there will be no end. And so even when that's happening in Washington, we know that behind the scenes, it's not gonna make CNN or Fox News or any newspaper headlines, but behind the scenes, here on this lawn, in churches around the world, there is peace that is growing. Uh, there, is a, there is a ruler that is not like our president, and there's a ruler who will sow peace instead of division, and he is, he is reigning over the world right now, and we believe that as Christians. And the growth, I mean, part of the parable's point is the growth is small. And it's almost imperceptible. And it's growing in your life, even as it's growing in our community and around the world and churches everywhere. This tiny little seed is growing and it's creating shalom all over the place. It's done it for 2,000 years. And under its branches have grown things like hospitals, uh, a uniquely Christian thing. Universities, same thing. Even the growth of science itself is a uniquely Christian thing that has grown under the boughs of the tree of the kingdom of God. And abolitionists and suffragettes pushing for more and more people's rights, all of that is part of the growth of the tree. And although many horrible things have been done in the name of Christ, this is still happening. And that leads to the second parable, 
which is the parable of the yeast, um, which is interesting that he uses a woman as kind of the star of the parable. That would have been unusual. So that in itself is interesting. But in the, in the second parable, it's not so much about a spreading tree, but about uh, yeast that goes into deeply into every single part of the flour and the water and the bread. So it kind of operates differently than the, the seed going to the tree, almost the reverse direction. Instead of spreading out, it's spreading in. And he says uh, in verse 21, my rain is like, like leaven, that's yeast, that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour, 50 pounds of flour, that's a lot of flour, until it was all leavened. Again, it's hyperbole, 50 pounds of flour, a little bit of yeast, and the whole thing. I don't know how many, how many um, loaves of bread would 50 pounds of flour bake. A lot. And he's saying a little tiny amount of yeast is put into that, that flour. And if you know anything about baking, you can buy that yeast in those little packets. You put water in there. You, you put it in the, in the flour, and it begins to bubble uh, and ferment. Like, life begins to grow. And this is dead little flour particles, and the leaven goes in there um, with the flour and the yeast, and it begins to bubble up. And pretty soon you bake it, and this beautiful single loaf of bread comes out of all those uh, disparate pieces of flour. It brings it all together and makes it grow. And we live in a society that is dominated by the, um, the idea of what is called expressive individualism. It's a term that Robert Bella, uh, Sociologist who wrote a book called Bowling Alone, uh, he, he coined the term expressive individualism. And I saw an article that said, I think it was like five years ago, that uh, Donald Trump was described as the, most, the, the person who most uh, exemplified expressive individualism. And the idea is you define yourself. The highest good in life, and both liberal and conservatives have bought into this you know, completely, but the idea is that you define who you are. And, and that's the essence, the highest good in any society is the tolerance of who people say they are. And so you be you, uh, be true to yourself, follow your heart, find yourself. Those are all the little mantras of expressive individualism. And it has had devastating effects. I think what we saw in Washington was one of those effects of this kind of fragmentation and division and all the breaking of social ties, like bowling leagues, gone, uh, PTAs, gone. Uh, massive alienation, loneliness, because now we're a nation of 300 million atomized selves, as one sociologist called them, uh, an atom, like a little tiny particle, atomized selves. So we have a third of a billion self-contained egos on their phones, like bumping into one another and creating chaos. And Jesus says, I can take all those 300 million pieces of flour and bind them together. I can take expressive individualists like each one of us, me too, and there are, it's not all bad, there's good things about individualism, but only Jesus could take expressive individualists and bind them together in love by his Holy Spirit and make a church. Uh, make people who call themselves brothers and sisters and give up some of that right to define themselves as he wraps himself around us and makes us learn how to love each other. 1 Corinthians 10, 17 says, We who are many are one body because we are all one loaf. One loaf, we're all one loaf of bread. And that's what Paul's talking about, communion. So just think about all the ways that Jesus could use you to bind instead of, instead of spread and break apart and loosen.
and all the ways that he could use you to be part of a leavening of, of this body of people and connecting people instead of breaking people apart. And if you would concentrate on yourself a little bit less, and me too, and your profile and your likes and your image, and you think more about on how can I be part of bringing people together and unifying people and bringing peace, a home where birds make their nests. I mean, how could your home be a place where birds come and land? Uh, that's point one, is the expansiveness of the kingdom of Christ. It's like a little seed that turns into a mighty tree. It's like a bunch of flour that is brought together by yeast. So number two, briefly, uh, the narrow door. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Again, I said this earlier, it's a paradox. It's ironic, but he's saying that the narrowness of the door is the only way that you're going to have the expansiveness of the kingdom. Because, it, because Jesus is, is the door. He only is the door. Okay, we believe that um, that's one of the scandals of Christianity. It's called the scandal of particularity. Is that we believe there's one man, and only one man, who is ever God. In fact, no one else has ever claimed to be God, except for crazy people. So um, he's the only one who's ever done that. All the other wise religious leaders in the history of the world, Muhammad and Buddha, um, everyone else has said, I'm clearly not God. Um, and he, Jesus said, I am God. And so he is that one door because he is the one who said, I am God, come to save. Jesus said, uh, I am the door, John 10, 9. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. No more weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he will go in and come out and he will find pasture. So again, think about the, what he's saying there. I am the one little sheep gate. It's got to be through me. But if you come through me, there's this giant pasture where you can graze and you can have all this freedom. But you have to come through me. Which leads to the question, why him? You know, why not any other religious leader? And the answer is because he, he is the only kind of door. There are many, many doors, but there's only one door that... On top of that door says rest. So it's a room full of rest because all the other doors make you do all this stuff to be saved, but only that door, he does everything to save you. And so it says on top of that door, rest. And so in his kingdom of rest, it's, it's a green pasture. Uh, it's still waters. It's not a factory of workers doing all this stuff. He says, um, notice in verse 24, strive to enter the narrow door. So they're striving and making every effort. But then in verse 29, he says, people will come from the east, west, north, and south, and they will recline like a recliner. Um, like a lot of you are sitting in these seats, you're reclining. Um, some even have your feet up on little things. I think it's great. And you're in this posture of reclining. And that's the posture of the kingdom of God. People will come from the east and west, north and south, and recline at the table of the kingdom of God. So it's a paradox again. You strive, uh, which is a word used for ancient Olympic athletes. And they would organize their entire life around their craft, whether it's diet or sleep or exercise. Their entire life was, uh, as modern Olympic athletes are, completely organized around their craft, their skill, so he's saying you've got to make every effort to recline, to enter into rest. Um, actually, the, the book of Hebrews puts it best. I love this verse. It's so short. 
Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, 4 says, make every effort to enter into his rest. You've got to make every effort to enter into the rest offered by Jesus Christ. It's a very unique kind of striving. I mentioned it a few weeks ago. It's the ruthless elimination of hurry from your life. This great spiritual writer, Dallas Willard, was asked, what's the key to spiritual growth? He said, the ruthless elimination of hurry. I've been trying to work on that last few weeks. But that's the only way to have peace and to fight injustice is be, you, you have to make every effort to slow down and uh, cut out things in your life and not get busy first, but read and meditate and pray and keep the Sabbath and worship. Um, that's the only way uh, that you're going to find rest for your soul and find peace. It's going to actually make you expansive. Um, you've got to organize your life around the one who is rest himself. And you've got to lay down your restless thoughts onto the triumphant cry of Jesus where he says, it is finished. I have done everything. I've accomplished everything you need. You don't have to keep working and striving to be anxious because I've done it all. And you say to yourself, I am completely right with God because of all the work that he did. Strive to enter through the narrow door of that kind of rest. So the kingdom of God is not a bunch of people running around with their planners and barking out orders, you know, get to work, do this, do that. Uh, we fight for peace and justice by reclining at a table, by uh, enjoying a wedding banquet. That's the image. It's, the reclining is a wedding reception. And in the kingdom of God, you join in the, the festivities of the, the groom, which is what we're going to celebrate at this table where you're not sulking in a corner and looking at your watch, ready to get out of there, but you're dancing, you're drinking, you're enjoying yourself, you're laughing with the bride and groom, uh, you're reclining at a table. Again, verse 29, people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south, and they will recline at table in the kingdom of God. Now remember what the guy asked him. The guy asked him, are only a few saved? And Jesus didn't directly answer the question. What he basically said to the guy is, are you saved? Don't ask about them. Are you saved? But then he says at the end of the whole thing um, that people are going to come from the east, west, north, and south. So obviously, what is the answer? No. No, it's not true that only a few are saved. Tons of people are saved. They're saved from every country in the world. They're black and white and brown, and there's no, there's no nationalism uh, in that kingdom, and there's no racism, and there's no exclusivism. Um, it's Alaskans and Egyptians and Australians and Argentinians and Siberians, every point on the globe. It's a very international banquet, and no one's earning anything. Um, it, they're, all, they're all resting at the, at the wedding feast of the Lamb, and that's what we celebrate at this table. So we're going to partake now of uh, the very plastic version of the, the banquet that we're going to recline at one day. Uh, and I hate that they're in Tupperware containers, and I hate that we're drinking from individual cups and little separate pieces of bread. That's not really the symbolism, but it's the best we can do. And it works. It's still the, it's still the Lord's Supper. And I always say when we take the Lord's Supper um, that nobody should feel pressured to come to his table. Uh, Jesus would never want anyone to, to, to feel like I've got to do this out of peer pressure because my friends are going to do it, so I need to do it too. He would not want that at all. He would want for you to talk to him and to work out with him whether or not 
this is a good idea for you. So, so do that. Um, ask yourself, uh, ask God, is this good for me to do that right now? And just remember, his arms are wide open. Uh, he wants everyone to come. And so um, on the night he was betrayed, uh, Jesus took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant shed in my blood. And whenever you eat the bread and drink from the cup, once again, it's a proclamation that the kingdom of God has come on earth. And so um, I'm going to pray for us. And as I pray, uh, if those who are going to serve with me will come forward. Uh, Lord, we pray for um, an experience of feasting in the house of Zion. We will feast in the house of Zion. And uh, we will be together forever around a table like this. And it's going to be a really long wedding reception, the best ever, with incredible food and drink and dancing and reclining and conversations that go on and on. Give us a taste, God, a foretaste right now of the new creation uh, when the kingdom comes and the king returns. As we partake in this uh, very cold uh, night, it's getting darker, help us to remember our true home and what we're looking forward to. In Jesus' name, amen. So on the left side is the, uh, the wine. If you want the wine, come up those stairs down that sidewalk. If you want the grape juice, come to my right, right along here. And we'll put the elements in your hands and you can take them back to your seat and partake. So these are the gifts of God for you and people. And he welcomes you.